This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today by Evelyn Underhill Chapter 2 History and the Life of the Spirit Read by Mary Reagan we have already agreed that if we wish to grasp the real character of spiritual life, we must avoid the temptation to look at it as merely a historical subject. If it is what it claims to be, it is a form of eternal life, as constant, as accessible to us here and now, as in any so-called age of faith, therefore of actual and present importance, or else nothing at all. This is why I think that the approach to it through philosophy and psychology is so much to be preferred to the approach through pure history. Yet there is a sense in which we must not neglect such history, for here, if we try to enter by sympathy into the past, we can see the life of the spirit emerging and being lived in all degrees of perfection and under many different forms. Here, through and behind the immense diversity of temperaments which it has transfigured, we can best realize its uniform and enduring character, and therefore our own possibility of attaining to it and the way that we must tread so to do. History does not exhort us or explain to us, but exhibits living specimens to us, and these specimens witness again and again to the fact that a compelling power does exist in the world, little understood even by those who are inspired by it, which presses men to transcend their material limitations and mental conflicts and live a new creative life of harmony, freedom, and joy. Directly human character emerges as one of man's prime interests. This possibility emerges too, and is never lost sight of again. Hindu, Buddhist, Egyptian, Greek, Alexandrian, Muslim, and Christian all declare, with more or less completeness, a way of life, a path, a curve of development, which shall end in its attainment, and history brings us face to face with the real and human men and women who have followed this way and found its promise to be true. It is indeed of supreme importance to us that these men and women did truly and actually thus grow, suffer, and attain, did so feel the pressure of a more intense life and the demand of a more authentic love. Their adventures, whatsoever addition legend may have made to them, belong at the bottom to the realm of fact, of realistic happening, not of fantasy, and therefore speak not merely to our imagination but to our will. Unless the spiritual life were thus a part of history, it could only have for us the interest of a noble dream, an interest actually less than that of great poetry, for this at least has been given to us by man's hard, passionate work of expressing in concrete image, and ever the more concrete, the greater his art, the results of his transcendental contacts with beauty, power, or love. Thus, as the tracking out of a concrete life, a man from Nazareth to Calvary made Christianity a veritable human revelation of God, and not a Gnostic answer to the riddle of the soul. So the real and solid men and women of the Spirit, eating, drinking, working, suffering, loving, each in the circumstances of their own time, are the earnests of our own latent destiny and powers, the ability of the Christian to grow taller in Christ. 42. 
these powers that ability are factually present in the race and are totally independent of the specific religious system which may best awaken nourish and cause them to grow in order then that we may be from the first clear of all suspicion of vague romancing about indefinite types of perfection and keep tight hold on concrete life let us try to re-enter history and look at the quality of life exhibited by some of these great examples of dynamic spirituality and the movements which they initiated it is true that we can only select from among them but we will try to keep to those who have followed on highest levels a normal course the upstanding types varying much in temperament but little in aim and achievement of that form of life which is remade and controlled by the spirit and tinctured with eternal life if such a use of history is indeed to be educative for us we must avoid the conventional view of it as a mere chronicle of past events and of historic personalities as stuffed specimens exhibited against a flat tapestried background more or less picturesque but always thought of in opposition to the concrete thickness of the modern world we are not to think of spiritual epochs now closed of ages of faith utterly separated from us of saints as some peculiar species god's pet animals living in an incense-laden atmosphere and less vividly human and various than ourselves such conceptions are empty of historical content in the philosophic sense and when we are dealing with the accredited heroes of the spirit that is to say with the saints they are particularly common and particularly poisonous as benedetto croce has observed the very condition of the existence of real history is that the deeds celebrated must live and be present in the soul of the historian must be emotionally realized by him now as concrete fact weighted with significance it must be answer to a present not to a past interest of the race for thus alone can it convey to us some knowledge of its inward truth consider from this point of view the case of richard roll who has been called the father of english mysticism it is easy enough for those who regard spiritual history as dead chronicle and its subjects as something different from ourselves to look upon roll's threefold experience of the soul's reaction to god the heat of his quick love the sweetness of his spiritual intercourse the joyous melody with which it filled his austere self-giving life forty three as the probable result of the reaction of a neurotic temperament to medieval traditions but if for instance the oxford undergraduate of today realizes roll not as a picturesque fourteenth-century hermit but as a fellow-student another oxford undergraduate separated from him only by an interval of time who gave up that university and the career it could offer him under the compulsion of another wisdom and another love then he re-enters the living past if standing beside him in that small hut in the yorkshire walls from which the urgent message of new life spread through the north of england he hears rawls saying not more profitable not merrier than grace of contemplation which lifteth us from low things and presenteth us to god what thing is a grace but beginning of joy and what is perfection of joy but grace complete forty four if i say he so re-enters history that he can hear this as roll meant it not as a poetic phrase but as a living fact indeed life's very secret then his heart may be touched and he may begin to understand 
and then it may occur to him that this ardor and the sacrifice it impelled the hard life which it supported witness to another level of being reprove his own languor and comfort his contentment with the merely physical mental life and are not wholly to be accounted for in terms of superstition or of pathology when the living spirit in us thus meets the living spirit of the past our time span is enlarged and history is born and becomes contemporary thus both widening and deepening our vital experience it then becomes not only a real mode of life to us but more than this a mode of social life indeed we can hardly hope without this re-entrance into the time-stream to achieve by ourselves and in defiance of tradition a true integration of existence thus to defy tradition is to refuse all the gifts that the past can make to us and cut ourselves off from the cumulative experiences of the race the spirit as croce forty five reminds us is history makes history and is also itself the living result of all preceding history since becoming is the essential reality the creative formula of that life in which we find ourselves immersed it is from such an angle as this that i wish to approach the historical aspect of the life of spirit re-entering the past by sympathetic imagination refusing to be misled by superficial characteristics, but seeking the concrete factors of the regenerate life, the features which persist and have significance for it, getting, if we can, face to face with those intensely living men and women who have manifested it. This is not easy. In studying all such experience, we have to remember that men and women of the spirit are members of two orders. They have attachments both to time and to eternity. Their characteristic experiences indeed are non-temporal, but their feet are on the earth, the earth of their own day. Therefore, two factors will inevitably appear in those experiences, one due to tradition, the other to the free movements of creative life, and we, if we would understand, must discriminate between them. In this power of taking from the past and pushing on to the future, the balance maintained between stability and novelty we find one of their abiding characteristics. When this balance is broken, when there is either too complete a submission to tradition and authority, or too violent a rejection of it, full greatness is not achieved. In complete lives, the two things overlap, and so perfectly that no sharp distinction is made between the gifts of authority and of fresh experience. Traditional formulae, as we know, are often used because they are found to tally with life, to light up dark corners of our own spirits and give names to experiences which we want to define ceremonial deeds are used to actualize free contacts with reality and we need not be surprised that they can do this since tradition represents the crystallization and handling on under symbols of all the spiritual experiences of the race therefore the man or woman of the spirit will always accept and use some tradition and unless he does so, he is not of much use to his fellow men. He must not, then, be discredited on account of the symbolic system he adopts, but must be allowed to tell his news in his own way. We must not refuse to find reality within the Hindu's account of his joyous life-giving communion with Ram, any more than we refuse to find it within the Christian's description of his personal converse with Christ. We must not discredit the assurance which comes to the devout Buddhist who faithfully follows the middle way, 
or deny that pagan sacramentalism was to its initiates a channel of grace. For all these are children of tradition, occupy a given place in the stream of history, and commonly they are better, not worse, for accepting this fact with all that it involves. And on the other hand, as we shall see when we come to discuss the laws of suggestion and the function of belief, the weight of tradition presses the loyal and humble soul which accepts it to such an interpretation of its own spiritual intuitions as its church, its creed, its environment give to it. Thus, St. Catherine of Genoa, St. Teresa, even Roycebrook, are able to describe their intuitive communion with God in strictly Catholic terms, and by so doing renew, enrich, and explicate the content of those terms for those who follow them. Those who could not harmonize their own vision of reality with the current formula, Fox, Wesley, or Blake, driven into opposition by the sterility of the contemporary church, were forced to find elsewhere some tradition through which to maintain contact with the past. Fox found it in the Bible, Wesley in patristic Christianity. Even Blake's prophetic system, when closely examined, is found to have many historic and Christian connections and all these regarded themselves far less as bringers in of novelty than as restorers of lost truth. So we must be prepared to discriminate the element of novelty from the element of stability, the reality of the intuition, the curve of growth, the moral situation, from the traditional and often symbolic language in which it is given to us. The comparative method helps us towards this, and is thus not, as some would pretend, the servant of skepticism, but rightly used the revealer of the spirit of life in its variety of gifts. In this connection, we might remember that time, like space, is only of secondary importance to us, compared with the eons of preparation, the millions of years of our animal and subhuman existence. The life of the spirit as it appears in human history might well be regarded as simultaneous rather than successive. We may borrow the imagery of Dunn's great discourse on eternity and say that those heroic livers of the spiritual life whom we idly class in comparison with ourselves as antique or medieval men were but as a bed of flowers, some gathered at six, some at seven, some at eight, all in one morning in respect of this day. 46. Such a view brings them more near to us helps us to neglect mere differences of language and appearance, and grasp the warmly living and contemporary character of all historic truth. It preserves us, too, from the common error of discriminating between so-called ages of faith and our own. The more we study the past, the more clearly we recognize that there are no ages of faith. Such labels merely represent the arbitrary cuts which we make in the time stream, the arbitrary colors which we give to it. The spiritual man or woman is always fundamentally the same kind of man or woman, always reaching out with the same faith and love towards the heart of the same universe, though telling that faith and love in various tongues. He is far less the child of his time than the transformer of it. His this-world business is to bring in novelty, new reality, fresh life, yet coming to fulfill, not to destroy, he uses for this purpose the traditions, creeds, even the institutions of his day. But when he has done with them, they do not look the same as they did before. Christ himself has been well called a constructive revolutionary. 47. 
yet each single element of his teaching can be found in Jewish tradition, and the noblest of his followers have the same character. Thus St. Francis of Assisi only sought consistently to apply the teaching of the New Testament, and St. Teresa that of the Carmelite rule. Every element of Wesleyanism is to be found in primitive Christianity, and Wesleyanism is itself the tradition from which the new vigor of the Salvation Army sprang. The great regenerators of history are always in fundamental opposition to the common life of their day, for they demand by their very existence a return to first principles, a revolution in the ways of thinking and of acting common among men, a heroic consistency and single-mindedness, but they can use for their own fresh constructions and contacts with eternal life the material which this life offers to them. The experiments of St. Benedict, St. Francis, Fox, or Wesley were not, therefore, the natural products of ages of faith. They each represented the revolt of a heroic soul against surrounding apathy and decadence, an invasion of novelty, a sharp break with society, a new use of antique tradition depending on new contacts with the spirit. Greatness is seldom in harmony with its own epoch, and spiritual greatness least of all. It is usually startlingly modern, even eccentric at the time at which it appears. We are accustomed to think of the imitation of Christ as the classic expression of medieval spirituality. But when Thomas Akempis wrote his book, it was the manifesto of that which was called the modern devotion, and represented a new attempt to live the life of the spirit, in opposition to surrounding apathy. When we re-enter the past, we find there is the persistent conflict between this novelty and this apathy, that is to say, between man's instinct for transcendence, in which we discern the pressure of the spirit and earnest of its future, and his tendency to lag behind towards animal levels, in which we see the influence of his racial past. So far as the individual is concerned, all that religion means by grace is resumed under the first head, much that it means by sin under the second head. And the most striking, though not the only, examples of the forward reach of life towards freedom, that is, of conquering grace, are those persons whom we call men and women of the Spirit. In them it is incarnate, and through them, as it were, it spreads and gives the race a lift. For their transfiguration is never for themselves alone. They impart it to all who follow them. But... The downward, falling movement ever dogs the emerging life of spirit and tends to drag back to the average level the group these have vivified when their influence is withdrawn. Hence the history of the spirit, and incidentally the history of all churches, exhibits to us a series of strong movements towards completed life inspired by vigorous and transcendent personalities thwarted by the common indolence and tendency to mechanization. But perpetually renewed. We have no reason to suppose that this history is a closed book, or that the spiritual life struggling to emerge among ourselves will follow other laws. We desire then, if we can, to discover what it was that these transcendent personalities possessed. We may think, from the point at which we now stand, that they had some things which were false, or at least were misinterpreted by them. We cannot without insincerity make their view of the universe our own, but plainly they also possess truths and values which most of us have not. They obtain from their religion, whether we allow that it had as creed an absolute or symbolic value, 
a power of living, a courage, and a clear vision, which we do not as a rule obtain. When we study the character and works of these men and women, observing their nobility, their sweetness, their power of endurance, their outflowing love, we must, unless we be utterly insensitive, perceive ourselves to be confronted by a quality of being which we do not possess. And when we are so fortunate as to meet one of them in the flesh, though his conduct is commonly more normal than our own, we know then, with Plotinus, that the soul has another life. Yet many of us accept the same creedal forms, use the same liturgies, acknowledge the same scale of values and the same moral law. But as something beyond what the ordinary man calls beauty rushes out to the great artist from the visible world, and he at this encounter becomes more vividly alive, so for these there was and is in religion a new, intenser life which they can reach. They seem to represent favorable variations, genuine movements of man towards new levels, a type of life and of greatness which remains among the hoarded possibilities of the race. Now, the main questions which we have to ask of history fall into two groups. First, type. What are the characters which mark this life of the spirit? Secondly, process. What is the line of development by which the individual comes to acquire and exhibit these characters? First, then, the spiritual type. What we see above all in these men and women, so frequently repeated that we may regard it as classic, is a perpetual, serious, heroic effort to integrate life about its highest factors. Their central quality and real source of power is this single-mindedness. They aim at God. The phrase is Roysbrook's, but it pervades the real literature of the spirit. Thus it is the first principle of Hinduism that the householder must keep touch with Brahma in all his actions. 48. Thus the Sufi says he has but two laws, to look in one direction and to live in one way. 49. Christians call this, and with reason, the imitation of Christ, and it was in order to carry forward this imitation more perfectly that all the great Christian systems of spiritual training were framed. The New Testament leaves us in no doubt that the central fact of our Lord's life was his abiding sense of direct connection with, and responsibility to, the Father, that his teaching and works of charity alike were inspired by this union, and that he declared it not as a unique fact, but as a possible human ideal. This is not a theological, but a historical statement which applies, in its degree to every man and woman who has been a follower of Christ. For he was, as St. Paul has said, the eldest in a vast family of brothers. The same single-minded effort and attainment meet us in other great faiths, though these may lack a historic ideal of perfect holiness and love, and by a paradox repeated again and again in human history, it is this utter devotion to the spiritual and eternal which is seen to bring forth the most abundant fruits in the temporal sphere, giving not only the strength to do difficult things, but that creative charity which wins and redeems the unlovely by the power of its love. 50. The man or woman of prayer, the community devoted to it, tap some deep source of power and use it in the most practical ways. Thus the only object of the Benedictine rule was the fostering of goodness in those who adopted it, the education of the soul, and it became one of the chief instruments in the civilization of Europe. K. 
carrying forward not only religion, but education, pure scholarship, art, and industrial reform. The object of St. Bernard's reform was the restoration of the life of prayer. His monks, going out into the waste places with no provision but their own faith, hope, and charity, revived agriculture, established industry, literally compelled the wilderness to flower for God. The brothers of the common life joined together in order that, living simply and by their own industry, they might observe a rule of constant prayer, and they became in consequence a powerful educational influence. The object of Wesley and his first companions was by declaration the saving of their own souls, and the living only to the glory of God. But they were impelled at once by this to practical deeds of mercy, and ultimately became the regenerators of religion in the English-speaking world. It is well to emphasize this truth, for it conveys a lesson which we can learn from history at the present time with much profit to ourselves. It means that reconstruction of character and reorientation of attention must precede reconstruction of society, that the Sufi is right when he declares that the whole secret lies in looking in one direction and living in one way. Again and again it has been proved that those who aim at God do better work than those who start with the declared intention of benefiting their fellow men. We must be good before we can do good, be real before we can accomplish real things. No generalized benevolence, no social Christianity, however beautiful and devoted, can take the place of the centering of the spirit on eternal values this humble, deliberate recourse to reality. To suppose that it can do so is to fly in the face of history and mistake effect for cause. This brings us to the second character, the rich completeness of the spiritual life, the way in which it fuses and transfigures the complementary human tendencies to contemplation and action, the non-successive and successive aspects of reality. The love of God, said Roycebrook, is an indrawing and outpouring tide, 51, and history endorses this. In its greatest representatives, the rhythm of adoration and work is seen in an accentuated form. These people seldom or never answer to the popular idea of idle contemplatives. They do not withdraw from the stream of natural life and effort, but plunge into it more deeply, seek its heart. They have powers of expression and creation and use them to the full. St. Paul, St. Benedict, St. Bernard, St. Francis, St. Teresa, St. Ignatius, organizing families which shall incarnate the gift of new life. Fox, Wesley, and Booth, striving to save other men. Mary Slessor, driven by vocation from the Dundee Mill to the African swamps. These are characteristic of them. We perceive that they are not specialists, as more earthly types of efficiency are apt to be. Theirs are rich natures. Their touch on existence has often an artistic quality. St. Paul and his correspondents could break into poetry as the only way of telling the truth. St. Jerome lived to the full the lives of scholar and of ascetic. St. Francis, in his perpetual missionary activities, still found time for his music and songs. St. Hildegard and St. Catherine of Siena had their strong political interests. Jacopo and de Todi combined the careers of politician and poet. So, too, in practical matters. St. Catherine of Genoa was one of the first hospital administrators. St. Vincent de Paul a genius in the sphere of organized charity. Elizabeth Fry in that of prison reform. 
Brother Lawrence assures us that he did his cooking the better for doing it in the presence of God. Jacob Boma was a hard-working cobbler, and afterwards as a writer showed amazing powers of composition. The perpetual journeyings and activities of Wesley reproduced in smaller compass the career of St. Paul. He was also an exact scholar and a practical educationist. Mary Slessor showed the quality of a ruler as well as that of a winner of souls. In the intellectual region, Richard of St. Victor was supreme in contemplation, and also a psychologist far in advance of his time. We are apt to forget the mystical side of Aquinas, who was poet and contemplative, as well as a scholastic philosopher. And the third feature we notice about these men and women is that this new power by which they lived was, as Roycebrook calls it, a spreading light. 52. It poured out of them, invading and illuminating other men, so that through them whole groups or societies were reborn, if only for a time, onto fresh levels of reality, goodness, and power. Their own intense personal experience was valid not only for themselves. They belonged to that class of natural leaders who are capable of infecting the herd with their own ideals, leading it to new feeding grounds, improving the common level. It is indeed the main social function of the man or woman of the spirit to be such a crowd-compeller, in the highest sense, and as the artist reveals new beauty to his fellow men, to stimulate their neighbors in a latent human capacity for God. In every great surge forward to new life, we can trace back the radiance to such a single point of light, the transfiguration of an individual soul. Thus, Christ's communion with his Father was the life center, the point of contact with eternity, whence radiated the joy and power of the primitive Christian flock, the classic example of a corporate spiritual life. When the young man with great possessions asked Jesus, What shall I do to be saved? Jesus replied, in effect, Put aside all lesser interests, strip off unrealities, and come. Give yourself the chance of catching the infection of holiness from me. Whatever be our view of Christian dogma, whatever meaning we attach to the words redemption and atonement, we shall hardly deny that in the life and character of the historic Christ something new was thus evoked from and added to humanity. No one can read with attention the gospel and the story of the primitive church without being struck by the consciousness of renovation, of enhancement experienced by all who received the Christian secret in its charismatic stage. This new factor is sometimes called rebirth, sometimes grace, sometimes the power of the Spirit, sometimes being in Christ. We misread history if we regard it either as a mere gust of emotional fervor, or a theological idea, or discount the miracles of healing and other proofs of enhanced power by which it was expressed. Everything goes to prove that the more abundant life offered by the Johannine Christ to his followers was literally experienced by them, and was the source of their joy, their enthusiasm, their mutual love, and power of endurance. End of chapter 2, part A